Hello, hello, and a very warm welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to help you beat high inflation by getting you investing in the stock market for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. And a very warm welcome to episode two of season five as we wander into August and plenty of stock market drama. Today, we're going to have a little look at the competing forces that are influencing investors in the stock market presently. We're going to hear which hedge fund is having an absolutely torrid year. We're going to see how the oil market is doing and the decisions its controlling cartel are making over production. We're going to scan across four different stock stories for you before then delving into our interview with Chelsea Financial Services and Fund Calibre's Managing Director, and of course, fountain of knowledge on funds, Darius McDermott. Of course, please share if you are enjoying the pod, and many thanks to our sponsor, Janice Henderson Investors, for their support, helping us educate and inform private investors. So I'm going to slightly change up the format, and uh, I thought I'd start with markets, really, considering how important uh, they are in these kind of updates and the fact that we're sort of investing. So uh, let's start there. And I think, you know, what, what, what we're seeing in markets in recent weeks is a bit of a tussle, really, between some of the well-known concerns around inflation being counterbalanced by some surprisingly good results from companies as they report their profits. So, you know, broadly, let's start with inflation. Of course, economies are really grappling with this. And there are sort of emerging kind of reports that that show (laughs) that this isn't really going to ease anytime soon. If we look at at the UK, we heard from a UK-based think tank, the Resolution Foundation, which said that inflation could hit 15% next year. And a big part of this is soaring gas prices, which of course are being stoked by Russia in response to Western sanctions being levied at it because of its horrifying aggression in Ukraine. And it means, you know, markets are thinking about the impact of this and 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 also central banks raising rates and they certainly started out today thinking about that the bank of england uh was due to to announce at lunchtime what it was going to do with interest rates and sure enough it's hiked them 0.5% to 1.75% and it's also warned that britain sort of faces um uh, a tough tough year um, uh, this year. It looks as if it, it said inflation would hit 13% by the end of the year and also that um, that we face a, a protracted recession as a, as a result of all of this. So that's not, that's not great. Um, one optimistic view that is emerging around this, which I thought I'd talk about, was that uh, because, because we've seen such sharp inflation and then and then sharp responses by central banks what it then may induce is a very sharp economic contraction which could cool inflation quite quickly and if it does that then central banks can move their tone a little bit become more dovish again as they say more accommodative again and and meaning that they would stop raising interest rates or even reduce rates balancing the inflation picture markets have had some positive trading days actually recently following reporting of better than expected company profits um, you know beating what the sort of analysts thought that they would produce both in the US and Europe in the US we've seen a little bit of recovery actually in the tech sector driven in part by a very good earnings win from from PayPal the tech heavy Nasdaq stock market rose to its highest point in three months yesterday um, uh, on the basis of this and, you know, it, which is good news, really. It follows the U.S.'s worst first half year performance in over 50 years. 
which was quite remarkable, really. And it's to do with the fact that they had all, you know, the markets are stocked with all these sort of innovative technology companies, which had, uh, you know, um, become quite unfavoured in the in the rising interest rate and inflationary environment. Um, and I'm going to explain that actually through the lens of a of a famous hedge fund in just a second. Um, I did I did wonder, sort of broadly looking across um, uh, at the visit to Taiwan by Senator Nancy Pelosi, uh, who is is the Speaker of, of the House of Representatives and sort of third in line to the US throne that is the presidency, um, and sort of wondering whether, you know, the, the tensions that it's sparking with China, we're now seeing four days of live fire drills, would upset markets, but they seem to have sort of shrugged it off. And um, interestingly, so have Asian markets as well. And I think what market participants are seeing is is that, you know, the costs would be very high to China. And that's certainly a picture that's been painted quite vividly by the costs that Russia are, you know, incurring in terms of, of their invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, so that this is all a lot of sort of saber rattling uh, with the US and... Um, and that you know that they don't think it's gonna it's gonna lead to some some sort of serious conflict. I think just one other things I think I think to think about in markets at the moment is just with the in U.S. raising interest rates so quickly, it is strengthening the dollar. And why is that a concern? Because the dollar is the world's most used currency. Um, uh, it's certainly outside of 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 its domestic economy. This is what we call, it's called a hard currency, um, and the problem with it being so widely used is it creates issues for uh, sort of emerging economies uh, who might rely on it quite a lot. So you know, when interest rates rise, it 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 sort of sucks money back into the U.S. as as uh, and the dollar will strengthen, and that kind of quells global trade, which tends to be the mainstay of smaller emerging market economies, um, but also can put them under pressure if their governments have a lot of debt that they've issued, government bonds, uh, which governments do, they can issue debt. If they've issued those in US dollars, then, uh, which is quite common, then that's also a problem because it means the rate of interest that they, that they have to pay to service that debt um, becomes more difficult to pay. In addition, it kind of exports inflation as well to those economies too. So in turn, they need to raise interest rates in order to in order to try and quell that too. So there's just a few reasons why it can be bad for emerging economies, and it, it's sort of one to watch. All in all, over the fortnight, the FTSE 100 is up 2.75% to 7,471. The S&P 500 is up 3.91% to 4,155. Europe's stock 600 is up 3.93% to 441. And the Nikkei 225 is up 0.46% to 27,932. All right, moving on. And I thought we would touch on hedge funds. I find these really interesting. And there was some good, a good report in the FT, um, which was sort of highlighting some of the issues they're facing recently. And I like these because they're very unusual, very specialist strategies. They're usually run by the the, the brightest of the investor crop uh, who tend to also enrich themselves uh, vastly through, through, through running these sorts of strategies. And they're sort of specialist in the sense that you, well, you get genuine hedge funds. So funds that are trying to uh, hedge against the risks of markets falling. So they use different sort of techniques in order to to try and um, sort of reduce reduce the risk of, of losses but then you get others that are that just sort of do very unusual things as well um, so they might do things use use unusual financial instruments for example like lots of derivatives or they may invest in really niche and unusual markets or run very concentrated or um, portfolios or really leveraged portfolios of so borrowing a lot which makes them quite volatile or investing in very illiquid assets meaning ones that are quite hard to sort of trade and buy and sell or what's quite common as well is the use of a technique called short selling which means profiting from falls in company share prices so for those reasons, for the complexities and the, and, and the unusual nature of those strategies, quite often as we retail investors, 
regulators don't allow us to to access them. Um, but I mean, but there are there are some that you can that you can access, particularly through the investment trust structure. Um, quite, so yeah, that's quite interesting. I think you know what the FPT was reporting, which was quite quite interesting, is that they've been doing really quite badly this year, particularly the strategies that combine long and short positions. So you know they'll find stocks that they think are going to go up, and also ones that they think are going to go down. Um, which is quite quite difficult to do well. Uh, one one person that I noted that had, that had a real shocker is quite a well known billionaire investor called Chase Coleman, uh, and he runs a hedge fund called Tiger Global. Now this is an interesting fund. It's a New York based fund, and he is one of this group of alumni, with, who are sort of informally known as the Tiger Cubs, who emanated from a legendary firm called Tiger Management. It was run by this awesome investor, Julian Robertson, who just over decades produced phenomenal returns and and a, a sort of quite specific style of investing um, before closing and retiring in 2000. And, uh, and, you know, if you're going to think about his style, basically it's kind of a bit Warren Buffett-esque in that he sort of seeks out companies with you know strong defendable positions in the marketplace you know what we might describe as you know high barriers to entry the kind of hard to compete with and as such they 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 are and remain quite profitable as well so he's sort of seeking out those businesses but doesn't unlike warren doesn't really care so much about valuations so a lot of these tiger cubs sort of learnt these techniques um uh uh, from here, from Julian Robertson, and then when he shut down in 2000, they then span out and, and sort of launched their own things, uh, including Chase Coleman, the third I may add, not at all pretentious. Um, uh, and he, what he did was he set up Tiger Global in 2001, and it was, you know, just after we had the the dot com crash, and uh, he then invested very successfully in in a large amount of tech stocks. Um, including also looking at China, which in, in some of the, ch the emerging Chinese technology firms, I think Tencent was one of them, um, which, um, you know, were, were sort of broadly being overlooked, I think, at, at that time, um, and, and produced phenomenal returns, you know, over two decades. However, this, this half of this year, it's not been so great. His flagship fund has lost 50%. After fees, he's got another one as well that's lost even more. And you know, for a collective vehicle, a vehicle, you know, a fund that invests in, in, in numerous investments, uh, that's pretty eye-watering. And it sort of shows you why uh, private investors, um, you know, uh, aren't, aren't allowed in these sorts of strategies. The reason is because you know, so he sent out this letter, um, which wasn't terribly impressive, um, but he said basically he'd been he'd been blindsided by the you know the, the rapidly rising inflation the fact that he i think he thought it would be a lot more transitory as many thought it would um so hadn't reduced his exposure to to stocks like in the technology sector which were very sensitive to um to rising interest rates and uh, and got absolutely hammered really and the reason you know if you if you you know considering that he thought that inflation was transitory what he thought would happen was that was something that has really happened over the past decade, and that's the, the the broader nature of technology around the globe being quite deflationary because it drives efficiencies, so it enables that kind of price competition, and and it has been a very deflationary force, and and uh, you know there's a lot of a lot of investors. I've had a lot of people who. Um, you know, specialists who think who think about those big, broad kind of forces. Um, you know, thinking that 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 kind of deflationary pressure was very strong, kind of here to stay. Um, I I don't think they quite had considered how strong the inflationary pressure would be out of COVID, and then then sort of stoked further um, by you know the, the war in Ukraine and problems in China and all those kind of things that we sort of talk about quite a lot. So he, he, he faces quite an uphill struggle, really, considering those, those sorts of losses. If you find 
hedge funds as interesting as I do, um, uh, please go to our YouTube channel and you'll find I have a video that I did on, on hedge funds and it sort of explains as well why hedge fund managers get paid so much money. Next up, let's have a little chat about oil. It's certainly uh, being talked about quite a lot at the moment. And I've got some good news for you, I think, in this area, really. I mean, for those of you who are, who are straining under the cost of living crisis and have cars that you use regularly and therefore probably been quite um, hamstrung at the pumps, the price of oil has been weakening recently and it may stay this way. So, of course, oil has been, has been you know, one part of those rising energy prices that have been, been driving inflation more broadly. And oil's produced all over the world. But there are some, a group of big producers. They're responsible for around 50% of global production currently. And within their countries, they have around 90% of proven reserves. So oil that we know is there. Um, and they're organized in this group known as the OPEC cartel, the Organization for Petroleum Exporting Countries. It was founded in the 1960s. It includes producers such as Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Venezuela, and a host of others, Nigeria, etc. But importantly, Russia and Saudi Arabia are at the helm of the group. And what, what OPEC members do is they get together and they agree production targets as a way of regulating the flow of oil onto global markets, but also slightly more cynically to avoid competing with each other too much and, and therefore keeping prices elevated so that they can maximise the profits that they're making for their nation states. And, you know, what we've seen in oil prices recently is that it shot up this year um, up to $124 a barrel in March around a lot of this anxiety to do with Ukraine, um, but has been levelling off and now has dropped and it, and, and it moved closer this week to $100 a barrel and then OPEC members met yesterday. And there's been a fair bit of diplomacy, all diplomacy around this meeting and we saw Presidents Biden and also Macron lobbying um, countries including Saudi Arabia so that to try and get them to increase production and take a bit of this sting out of the rising costs that we're all experiencing. Uh, difficult though because Saudi is also sort of balancing that kind of pressure with um, its relationship with Russia which is an important important member in the cartel. Um, so a small production increase was agreed uh, which might have disappointed leaders a little bit, but to be honest, we're seeing that oil is is still falling. It's gone below $100 a barrel. And and I think what's taking hold at the moment in the oil markets is that we've got, you know, we know there's punchy inflation and we're seeing rises in interest rates that central banks are are doing to, to, try, and, uh, to try and control that. Because this is, is sort of by design will induce uh, slowing in economic activity, it then affects the demand uh, for, for things like oil. And therefore, what traders are, are seeing and what they're sort of siding with is that that is bigger than the constraints in supply that we've seen um, uh, more recently as well. So it, it's that the anxieties of weakening demand is putting greater downward pressure on the oil price than the constrained supply is pushing upwards on it so um hence why we sort of we've seen it sort of drop uh i think what's what we can expect is that there's not a clear picture on either side of those so more volatility will probably occur in the oil markets um as these forces play out this sort of segues quite neatly onto okay what are we now seeing at the pumps and i was talking to hargreaves about oil and they were sort of mentioning some naughty supermarkets and what's going on in their forecourts. And what they're being accused of is failing to pass on the falls in the wholesale energy prices, stalling the speed at which people can, of course, benefit from the tempering of the oil price. So Tesco, Asda, Morrison, Sainsbury's all been accused of dropping their petrol prices by less than half the amount that wholesale prices have declined. And as the cost of living crisis continues to sort of clamp down on people's incomes, this sort of headline 
is something these companies really don't need. Many have tried to sort of align themselves as companies willing to help ordinary people who are struggling by adjusting grocery pricing or and quantities to, to sort of ease the consumer crisis. But, you know, many will therefore, you know, sort of ask whether this this narrative can be then so different when it comes to petrol prices at the, at the pumps. So it seems what's happening at a business level is that supermarkets were hampered during the pandemic when petrol prices famously dropped to sort of, well, even into negative territory. Um, so what they're, they're doing, arguably, is to make up some of these previous shortcomings by by not passing these these drops on so quickly. So, mm, yeah, it does seem a bit naughty. Okay, well, that was the kind of upstream uh, part of the oil market at the four courts. Let's move further downstream and have a little look at some of those big super majors who do all that drilling and and, and get the, the stuff out of the ground. And, you know, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, share prices are pretty high. I wonder how this translates into uh, the profits of, of, of some of these big oil companies. And uh, BP gave us some insight, a little glimpse into their fortunes. And as expected, it's been bumper profits. So they were reporting on quarter two, how they'd sort of performed in, in the second quarter this year. And what we saw was that their profits rose to 8.5 billion. That's up from 6.2 billion in the first quarter. So very, very juicy. And what it's enabled them to do is to pay down some of the debts that they had by several billion, as well as announce three and a half billion dollars in, in share buybacks. Now, just to explain, there's a couple of ways, you know, when when companies have a big windfall of profits, what they can do is hand back money to shareholders, which is often quite keen on doing in a couple of ways, they can pay out a special dividend, or they can repurchase shares from the market which reduces the amount of shares in circulation. So it will then increase that that profit, that earnings per share amount, and therefore the share price, which will benefit current shareholders. So there's a couple of ways you can sort of hand back money. What BP have also done, though, is announced a 10%, a 10% increase in its quarterly dividend as well. And it said it will continue these increases into 2025 if the oil price remains above $60 a barrel. Aside from doling out goodies to shareholders, the group has said it's also investing in its hydrocarbon operations, which might be contentious for those who are concerned about climate change uh, and and all that nasty CO2 that's that's uh, that's a greenhouse gas that is emitted from from the burning of hydrocarbons, but also investing in renewables as well. So it's kind of playing both sides here, really, um, and that includes wind farms. Uh, just offshore from the Netherlands, as well as this hydrogen, big hydrogen projects in Australia, Iberia, and in the UK. So interesting stuff there from one of the UK's, you know, in most important companies and one of the biggest dividend payers too. Moving on, a few more little stories for you that I thought were interesting. We'll start with Greg's, the infamous bakery here in the UK. Or, you know, if you're into hilarious social media clips, it's also pronounced GR Eggs, apparently, according to one American tourist, and it seems they are feeling some of this cost pressure from inflation, which is a shame because sales are booming. So their sales are up 27% versus last year. But unfortunately, the rising costs have just eaten into their, their, their profit margins, which meant that profits have remained flat. So I'm sure they're probably a little bit disappointed about that. Um, next up, Direct Line, the insurance group. It reported this week too, and and there's been a slump in profits with their half-year results having halved from a year earlier. And what they're saying is that car repair costs and the cost of personal injury claims have been rocketing with everything from spare parts and body shop labour costs all rising faster than the group had expected. Direct lines say... They have now repriced their policies to restore the expected rate of profit to normal levels. I'm going to finish up with, in our in our sort of stock stories with British Airways. So, unfortunately, um, a bit more misery for those who booked 
flights with the nation's flag carrier. Um, and what, and what it's it's announced is it's extending the suspending of short haul flights from from Heathrow, which follows the airport's controversial cap on on passenger numbers that are introduced. So um, you know, customers are in no doubt at a point where they care very little about the ongoing spat between Heathrow and the airlines and instead just want a solution, I'm sure, to their to their long-awaited and much-needed getaways. Looking at, at BA from a shareholder's point of view, this disruption doesn't spell good news, really, for its parent company, which is called IAG. Um, you know, pairing down the flight schedule makes it harder to pay the very high level of, of high levels of non-flexible costs that airlines have as long-haul specialists BA's sort of path to recovery seems to be more protracted than the short haulers too so this added obstacle is uh, is magnified okay let's let's move on and uh, and to our interview with Darius McDermott now as many of you listening to this pod are aware it's certainly a challenging time in markets at the moment we've got high inflation and rapidly rising interest rates, which is threatening growth in economies and unsettling markets. It's creating very polarised markets, fraught with risk, but also some pretty good opportunities too. It's what we might call a stock pickers market. So to help us understand all of this and to think about where those opportunities are. Today, we're going to be speaking to Darius McDermott. He's an extremely well-known commentator within the industry, given his role as Managing Director of Chelsea Financial Services and Fund Calibre, which is an independent funds rating agency and research business. Darius, a very warm welcome to you. Good morning, Marcus. Thank you for having me on. Shall we start with your view on where global markets are currently? I mean, how have they performed in the first half of this year? Well, I think anybody who invests or follows their investments knows that it's been an um, extraordinarily challenging start to the year. I think it's always easy with hindsight to look back, but markets had had a very strong run. As we'll remember, there was a very sharp market sell-off in February and March of 2020 as COVID and the sort of the impact of lockdowns began to be felt. But really from that March 2020 low, we then went on another massive run, you know, sort of some of those tech names in the US were up over 100% from those lows. And, you know, looking back, I think, you know, things had got a bit stretched. Then if you bring the narrative into sort of 2022, things didn't look so good. We have this persistent inflation. It's no longer transitory as you know, the word transitory was 2021's narrative. It's definitely not 2022's narrative. And you know the standard playbook with inflation is interest rates go up. Sometimes they go up um, too far, too fast. And this can often lead to recession. And stock markets generally tend to um, start to underperform before you end up the recession it's like a leading indicator and then if that wasn't in itself challenging enough we've got the russia ukraine situation which was just like pouring more petrol on the fire and again as i'm sure your listeners are aware don't need me to tell you you know one of the major inflationary inputs has been energy now whether that's heating and powering your home or putting petrol in your car We've seen substantial price rises in the energy sector this year, and that has been further exasperated by the Russia-Ukraine situation. So, <clears throat> you know, with markets looking expensive at the end of last year, particularly the likes of the US, and recession now starting to come onto the horizon, stock markets have certainly been more challenged in 2022. Global markets are down around 18% year to date, um, with the US being down, broadly being down 17% as well. But pockets within that, i.e. the large cap value, uh, the large cap growth markets are sort of down 25%. So yeah, a fairly decent sell-off so far this year. 
Okay, that's interesting, Darius. I mean, so so central banks are quite aware of the fact that hiking interest rates could send economies into recessions. Is is that something that they they, they know that they might do? Oh, absolutely. I think in the case of the US, um, the Fed now wants to send the US into recession to try and remove that demand from the consumer, which is fueling inflation. Uh, well, let's stick with the US just for a minute, because they are the world's biggest market and the, more importantly, the world's biggest consumer. You know, people continued to earn through COVID, whether it was by a furlough or from working from home. But they couldn't actually spend their money on anything. So, you know, savings rates in the US did build up. Now, a chunk of that money actually hit the stock market in 2020, which was another factor to help drive um, driving the S&P uh, and the Nasdaq in, in, into new record highs through that year. But what we did see is, you know, some of the supply chain issues that, that COVID created was was inflationary, as was continually printing money and giving it to the consumer. It's inflationary. So, so central banks thought that, that inflation was a short-term issue caused by supply chain blockages from COVID. And as we sort of came into 2022, it's quite apparent that it isn't transitory, that it is much more endemic and Central banks, unfortunately, were behind the curve with respect to raising interest rates. They probably should have started much sooner. Uh, now they're playing catch up. And you know they want to hit that tipping point where the consumer actually doesn't want to consume to try and get that demand side of the inflationary um, uh, equation down. So yeah, I think a, a, a dramatic slowdown is what central banks are now trying to achieve. It's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because you, you do wonder, how is it that an enormous institution such as central banks are kind of seems behind the curve? And they hadn't seen that as economies just suddenly snap, reopen, and people have all this cash that they've saved up and all this time that they, you know, they didn't have out there spending and living their normal lives, that no one foresaw that this inflationary sort of genie would be let out of the bottle. I mean, how is that possible that so many of these big institutions, so many of these brains couldn't have seen this coming? Well, it's, it's a fantastic question and I, I don't have an honest answer. I mean, I didn't do economics um, at, at university. I, I studied uh, a different subject. And in 2009 was the first time that I'd really encountered QE following the great financial crisis. So I put into Google, what does QE lead to? And in 2009, Google was telling me that QE was inflationary. Now, as we know, throughout the next decade of the 2010 to 2020s, even though there was this record QE following the, the, the great financial crisis, we had no inflation at all. In fact, this inflation was was often more more readily discussed. And you think about Europe. Europe had negative rates throughout that decade. So, um, I think you know that. But what? Where was all that money that was being printed going? Well, a big chunk of it was going to sit on bank balance sheets to to prop the banks up to make them less risky. But it wasn't actually entering the system. You know, it wasn't entering your pocket and mine. So as we go, well, we've got all this extra money, let's go and spend it. But this time it did. And, you know, it, it the money or the furlough payments that, that, that were, were certainly prevalent in developed markets were, were sent to basically prop the consumer up so that individuals could continue to, to live and function. But it's certainly on top of the supply chain blockages caused by COVID, it's been super inflationary this time. And, you know, here we are, the last print in the UK was 9.4%. So inflation is here, yet UK rates are one, one and a quarter. So rates are miles behind inflation. Um, those of your listeners who are old enough to remember the 70s and the 80s, I mean, inflation was 10, rates were 15. That's just what happened. And that is not happening in this current cycle. So you know, there's still enough concern as to where this all ends up. And, you know, that's one of the issues that, that weighs on stock markets and stock markets do not like uncertainty. 
and you and you make a very good point there so it's what we, we would describe as that real rate of interest that people are getting even though they've kind of gone up a little bit it's still very negative considering where inflation is at the moment so would you say in terms of you know when you're thinking about that saving question or that investing question that it's still a good idea if you have any if you want any chance of your of your wealth moving forward and going up that investing is probably a better idea than saving is that fair well i, I think it absolutely is fair but you have to bear in mind your time scale so if you said to me today that's you know summer 22 darius i've got a pound I'd like it to be £1.10 next year to match inflation. Well, I think there's a reasonable chance that that might happen, but but might it go to 90p before it goes to £1.10? Absolutely, it might. So, you know, we have uh, those investing in stock markets aren't doing it in a 12 month basis. And if you are, you're probably in the wrong, you're probably in the wrong gig. Um, what we say to clients at, at times like this is remind yourself what your investment horizon is. If you are 40 and you're saving in pensions and 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 ices etc you probably don't want that money for 15 20 25 years so the fact that markets are volatile today doesn't really matter if you're saving monthly the fact that markets go down is good because you get more units every time you put your your sort of nominal 100 pounds in so the one thing i can tell you is with rates at, at one one even if they get to two percent if inflation stays at nine, you're absolutely guaranteed to lose the purchasing power by seven, eight percent of your money in cash. So cash is a definite no-no in this environment. But if people and investors are not able to accept the heightened volatility that markets are going through at the moment, then maybe you know they then they shouldn't invest. But you know, one of one of our jobs, I, I think, is 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 to explain about markets and long-term savings. And to get people invested. So to my mind, it is the only choice. But, you know, I wouldn't want your listeners to think it was the only choice if they weren't able to stomach some of that volatility that I'm afraid I think we will continue to see throughout the second half of 2022, potentially through much of 23. As we get a picture on what the recession looks like, is it going to be a soft landing where a recession will be short, pained, and then the economy will start to grow again? Or might it be a bit more deep and painful? Um, and in which case, I think, you know, stock markets won't like that. So, yeah, I, it's not easy, even with markets being down 20%, to just say, yeah, now's the time to buy. I'd love to be able to say that. And maybe it is. Um, but I do think we will continue to see um, some volatility ahead, for sure. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you you described that well. It, it is there's a lot of complex top down macro forces that are sort of influencing uh, where large swathes of the market might perform or, or might not perform. And you sort of, as you mentioned, interest rates might be really good for banks, but then if a recession comes along, that might be less good for banks. So it, it, I suppose it's quite difficult to navigate all of that. And I suppose it's also why having a a professional investment manager, presumably at the moment, is quite a good shout because you kind of need that you know you usually you know economics experts people who, who kind of can understand how all these forces influence companies it's probably quite a good idea having a fund with an investment professional running it right now would you agree with that i, I mean i i would but the, 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 there are other observations if you're a global fund manager and the global index is down 20 you're going to be losing money now if you've navigated everything perfectly you, you may only be down seven or eight whereas other managers might be down sort of 20 30 percent mm. the other thing which we haven't touched on at all uh, yet and something i talk about a lot probably too much but is the style of investments and the narrative in the market from that covid low and through most of the last decade was that the quality stocks the growth stocks were the place to be well, that's not the case in 2022 at all. And just to give you a little bit of color on that, in the US, large cap value is down 10%. Large cap growth is down 23%, leading to a market being down in aggregate 17%. So you can see stylistically, 
the, the value is now outperforming, or certainly in this year to date, on a global basis, global growth is down 23.5%, and global value is down 11.5%. So that's the other factor which we have yet to touch on, because value stocks were very, very cheap, and growth stocks were at the long, you know, very, very expensive. So we're seeing that narrative play out on top of all the macro stuff we've already dis discussed with inflation and rates and banks being behind the curve. So uh, nobody ever said stock markets were easy. And the day you do is probably <laughs> the, the day you retire because you're rich or the day you bust. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, it, 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 it is all about long-term savings, having balanced portfolios. I've always been an advocate of trying to save on a monthly basis. It gets rid of all temptation to try and time markets. Everybody thinks it's, it, it's easy. Um, another well-known sort of market tactic is you buy the dips. Well, it, the, the point about buying the dips is if markets are, say, down 10%, you can put some, if you've got some cash, you can put some cash in. But you've got to keep a bit of cash in case markets go down another 10%. And that's what we've seen this year. Um, perversely, the one market that nobody's talking about is the... Uh, the hated stock market of the world, which is our own fantastic UK stock market. <laughs> um, unloved because it was the laggard for years and years. But actually, these are data taken on the 22nd of July. So I will caveat that we might be a, a bit behind. But the UK stock market is actually up, if not slightly well. It's up a half a percent this year, whereas the US stock market, the US stock market is down as I say, you know, that sort of near near 20%. So maybe it's time for people to start to look at the good old, um, the good old UK market again, uh, which has been hated by not just global investors, but also by UK investors for, for, for many years now. Mm. Okay, well, I wanted to get on to some, um, you know, we were going to look at three areas of the market where you think there's opportunity. So is it fair to say that, you would, you would, your first one might be the UK. Would you say that's your, your first opportunity? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think the UK is um, a, a massively overlooked. Now, Len, let's just take a moment to think what the UK market is made up of. And again, I'm going to generalize here, but there's a lot of financials, there's a lot of large cap oil, and there's a lot of mining. Um, so if you take those sectors, they've been sectors that have done well this year, which is one of the main reasons that the UK is flat. We don't have a big technology sector, unlike the US, which is one of the reasons that the US is down so much. So um, I think the UK and dare, dare I suggest a, a good old fashioned UK income fund, uh, the, okay. the, the staple of many investors in the late 90s and noughties was was uk equity income and if you were in a position where you didn't need to take that income you would just reinvest those dividends buying more and it was a lovely compounding um way of investing and um i'll give you a couple of funds that that, that you might mm. like to consider um so gam uh gam uk income fund run by adrian gosden uh, he definitely has more of a value style of investing um, and, you know, the UK market is yielding around 4%. So when we go back to that inflation target of nine, if I'm getting 4% dividend income from UK stock market, that's, that's a half way towards that inflationary target, mm -hmm. that sort of 10% we, we desperately need to, to at least not lose money with respect mm -hmm. to inflation. So, and of course, your but capital that, is, is also growing as well at the same time. Absolutely. You, you, you hope to get capital growth. Um, it, 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 it's not something one can expect every year. But, you know, sometimes you can, if, if you've got companies which have got earnings of free cash flow yields of four or five and you've got your dividends, well, all of a sudden you, 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 you're there or thereabouts to that sort of nine, ten percent returns that one might um that one might hope for. And this fund uh, is uh, Adrian Gosden's fund. He, he, he's run it since launch. And, you know, a, a, a fair yield, but also 
they've got a lower um, annual management charge than many. Uh, the, the AMC on the fund is itself only 55 basis points, whereas, you know, the industry is sort of anchored around that 75 basis points. Hmm. So a newer fund, um, it's done pretty well since launch, got a decent dividend and some slightly lower charges. So that, 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 that um, was one that I thought might uh, be of interest. Um, another fund, so the, the other thing to Eric to, to, to say is when markets are volatile, mid and small size companies tend to outperform. They are a riskier asset class. So something like um, LF Montanaro UK Income, now, this fund invests in profitable qualities companies, but it does so at the lower end of the stock market. And that part of the stock market has been sold off much more heavily. So you know, if markets continue to be difficult, small companies will underperform. But if I'm now taking a longer term view and not a 12 month view, that's the type of thing that I want to buy at or approaching the bottom of the markets, because as we know, over most long-term timeframes, you know, smaller companies actually do outperform, but underperform those sort of volatile markets. Okay, interesting. So that's a, um, a bit more risk in, in that particular fund. Okay, so that was the UK. Where is your second area of opportunity? So looking at investments which benefit from rising inflation or, or at least higher inflation. And this, I think, is is now a well-known um, idea, but I, I'm going to say it nevertheless. And it, it's looking at some of the renewable um, energy investment trusts that are available. So they benefit um, from, from inflation, but they also benefit from higher um, power prices. And as we've touched on, one thing we know that's higher is power prices and energy prices. And they all had a little bit of a wobble around the time that the then chancellor was suggesting doing some form of windfall tax on companies that benefit from rising power prices. Um, I'm not confident that they're going to do any form of windfall tax at all, let alone on these niche investments at a time when we're trying to increase renewable energy and decrease conventional energy supplies. So they, they, they got a bit of bit nervous around that, but you know, they are benefiting from how higher inflation and higher power price, sorry, higher power prices. Yet in aggregate, they've been a bit soft because of market worries about this windfall tax. So that's an area that, that I think, and, and there are approaching a dozen of them on the, um, on the London, stock exchange that one can pick from um i'll give you some names not i'm because i don't do recommending of investment of single stocks but the likes of green coat uk wind uh, foresight solar is the renewables investment company bluefield solar uh, gcp infrastructure to name but a handful of them and then the, and there are a number of others those are just a couple that i'm more familiar with but they're not direct recommendations just to be clear but just a couple of names that, that, that I know um, are, are benefiting from these trends. Okay, so we've got UK, we've got renewables. What is your third area of opportunity? So this is, again, a very niche pick and has actually done quite well this year, but it's global insurance. And okay. it's a very niche sector. And there is one particular fund uh, that, that we really like in this area. And uh, it is the Polar Global Insurance Fund run by Nick Martin. They're currently benefiting. So this is what we would generally call reinsurance. So this is not the insurance that you and I might take on our car or our house, but it's companies gaining insurance on their ships or, or their fleet of uh, lorries or whatever it might be. And it's also in that area of that sort of what they call catastrophe insurance. So insurance against hurricanes or floods or any other major weather type of um, damage in uh, earthquakes and, and the like. And it tends to follow that if there is a bad event, 
it tends to follow that if there is a sort of a, a, a catastrophe of one type or another, that the rates go up to get insurance and that these companies can then benefit from those enhanced rates. And the other thing to say is it has what we call a low beta to global markets. So if markets go up one, it tends to go up less than one. But if markets go down one, they tend to go down much less than one. So that's been a, a sector which is actually in positive territory in 2022 against a, a falling market. And, and I can see that trend continuing um, for, for a while longer. Mm. So do you think, I mean, I'm just interested by this sort of what's driving um, that kind of sector, really. Is it just, the, the, is it heightened risks globally? Is it just a changing sort of world? I mean, what is it that do you think sort of driving that area? Well, uh, as we, 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 we know, you know, when we talk about, they call it cat risk, but catastrophes, which tend to be earthquakes, major floods, hurricanes, things that come and cause, you know, substantial damage to to to, to areas and and covid sort of fits in that bill you know that was a a, a catastrophe and, and, and insurance companies have to pay out mm -hmm. um but just generally that slightly higher interest rate environment that we discussed with respect to financials also gives them a little bit of benefit mm -hmm. and you know i met with the manager in march and he was you know their fund was up actually already when markets had started to come down and it's kept on being steady, but this fund is targeting sort of eight to 10% per year. Clearly no fund does it every year, but this fund's got a long-term track record of delivering and it's an overlooked asset class, if you like, global insurance. It's not, it's just not mainstream. We think of global growth funds or we think of technology um, or healthcare, but global insurance is a niche investment sector and, and, and one with which you know, we like a lot. Mm -hmm. And of course, Paley Capital as well are um, a very well-respected outfit. Um, Indeed. Okay. And then uh, I was just wondering, I mean, is there anywhere that you would say, no, just just don't go there? <laughs> well, this is obviously very tricky. I, I personally think anything linked to that consumer discretionary trade mm -hmm. will be challenged from an earnings and a profitability point of view. So wherever we're investing, you know, often they will have some exposure to consumer, but, <clears throat> excuse me, um, as I mentioned earlier, things like food um, is a staple. You have to have it. Um, medicine, healthcare, some of those staples that you need, they're fine. They should be fine. But things that are on your discretionary list, things that you think, well, maybe I won't do this, or I won't do that. Because inflation is eating and I've got to be able to pay my energy bills, which we all get and know are going up in the second half of the year. Um, I think that discretionary area is things, areas that I'd want to be careful of. I'm not saying that there are no good companies in that area, because of course there are always some. Um, so yeah, to be mindful of consumer would be an area I'd be nervous on other areas that traditionally do bad in recession. Okay. Uh, I wanted to get on to, you know, fund managers. Obviously, you come across a lot of different fund managers uh, through your work. And uh, and I wondered if you had one that you you just thought, wow, what, a, what an incredible superstar, someone who just really gets what drives markets and, and, and how to make, you know, good returns. And, and we're going to exclude the famous one that everyone knows, which is Warren Buffett. I think yeah. just... Someone else, who would you say is a real superstar? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of names of actually two guys that have retired in recent years. Um, one is James Anderson, who ran Scottish Mortgage for a long period of time. He will be well known to a lot of your investors. Another one less so is probably a, a, a guy called Giles Hargreaves. Um, he built a UK mid and small cap desk and have run all the sort of Marlborough special situations, Marlborough uh, multi-cap funds uh, and their, their nano and micro-cap funds. Now, he also retired um, last year, but he built a team and his legacy sort of continues. And Marlborough Special Sits is one of the best performing funds over the last 25 years. And, you know, 
these small cap investors are the, where I think you find the true stock pickers. You know, they love stocks. They, they meet hundreds and hundreds of companies each year because, you know, there's lots of small companies you can pick from. And they, they just eat and drink company meetings and opportunity and backing management. You know, if management make you money in one company and then they go do it again, these sort of things, they'll often follow them. So that, that, that there's a couple of managers, I think, maybe. Um, but somebody who's still running money and... One of my favourites is a, a, a gentleman called Job Curtis, who runs the City of London Investment Trust, which is a UK core holding. Uh, it, it's an investment trust with an income mandate. Job's very conservative, but he's run the fund in excess of 30 years now. And the dividend has gone up every year in those 30 years. So he's what, what they call a dividend champion. Um, one of the then one of the, the positives of an investment trust structure over an open-ended fund structure is that they can actually hold back some of the income that they earn each year into what is called an income reserve and use that then to fund dividends in years when dividends are challenging. So we think of the likes of 2020 when COVID hit vast, you know, the UK stock market actually cancelled 40% of its dividend that year, yet this trust was still able to use its reserves to pay it an increased dividend on the year before. And, you know, it is, dare I say, a core UK income investment trust in that area that is often overlooked. And here's a, a trust and a, and a fund manager who is beautifully consistent. He's very careful and cautious with his investors' monies. He doesn't like to overpay for stocks. Yet year on year, he, he throws out this growing dividend. And uh, to me, he, 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 he's just done what he said he will do forever. But he's in that unloved UK space. And, and you know, if you need a growing dividend, where, where better a place to look to a trust that, that's grown a dividend actually for over 50 years, even though Job's only been on the trust for, for just over 30. Yeah, I mean, we we talk about investment trusts a fair bit on the on this podcast, and um, Job is actually a, a manager I used to work with because I I worked at um, at Janice Henderson and and no, uh, I didn't know that, so I can't be accused of uh, <laughs> no, picking one of you. No, 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 you you absolutely <laughs> didn't. No, you absolutely didn't. No, um, but I, I yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of Job, and and I've se I've seen him in action. And, um, exactly right, really. It's that kind of it's that conservative, you know. This is, I'm not going to shoot the lights out, but I'm going to deliver exactly what it is that I said I would. And, and, and it's a very important, you know, part, as you say, a core part of many people's portfolio. It's a top seller, isn't it? I think it at, at many, at many um, platforms as well. So, yeah, um, yeah good with private investors. OK, well, all great stuff there. I just wanted to finish on just some final little tips. And when we we have discussed the risks, the volatility that's sort of around in markets at the moment, and we don't want anyone on losing sleep so have you got any final tips for investors dealing with this this volatile markets and this time at the moment well I, i've touched on them but let, let, let's just use it for summary remind yourself what your investment goals are and your investment time frame if you're thinking you'll need income from your investments in 10 15 whatever it might be years do not panic when markets are volatile potentially use it as an opportunity for adding um, another strategy I mentioned is I just prefer, even though I'm an investment professional, I just prefer saving monthly. One thing I think that is impossible to do is to time markets. So if you put money in every month, you're saving for your long-term investment goals and you don't care if markets are up or down this month or next month. You just know that I'm putting that whatever sum of money, 200, 500 pounds away into my ISA or my pension or hopefully both. Um, to, to, to save for that, for, for, to give me some chance of having some asset to give, give me an income in retirement, whatever that may be. Um, don't panic when markets are volatile. It's the one thing we see is people wait, oh, it's down 10%. I wish I'd, you know, I'd read about Russia, I should have put some more in cash. And then it goes down another 10%. And then they go, right, that's I'm putting half my portfolio in cash just as a time when markets might bottom. And then you miss the opportunity to, to, to get the upside. Um, Fortunately, the COVID sell-off 
was so quick. I don't think investors had a chance to think about it. They just went, oops, market are down and markets have come back. So timing markets is, is incredibly difficult. But if you said to me, Darius, I built my investment portfolio and I need to take an income from it in six to 12 months, then I think you should be thinking very carefully about the volatility of, uh, that, that I do expect to continue over the year ahead. So it's what are my aims and what is my time frame? Always the two key things to remind ourselves when markets are volatile. Darius McDermott, thanks very much. Marcus, my pleasure. Anytime. Well, a very big thank you to Darius McDermott once again for joining me for that interview. thought it was really interesting. Great to hear as well that that uh, you know he thinks the UK market finally is sort of coming in out of the cold and actually seems quite attractive. Also, some of those unusual ideas like uh, reinsurance as well, which uh, I must admit I didn't know a lot about. So um, interesting to hear his views on that too. Of course, there's plenty of content in the Steps website. We've got a, a fresh blog that's going to be seeing a, a lot more going into it as well. So please give that a bit of a, a regular uh, look at, plus the podcast. Please don't forget to share this as well uh, amongst, amongst your friends and anyone who, who might be interested in investing. But until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.